I think a lot of people, um, especially at the club level, don't realize the importance of testing. And I don't mean just driving the car. Anytime I tested, I made a setup change. Every time I went on track, if nothing else, just to feel it. Welcome to the Your Data Driven Podcast. If you like this podcast, be sure to visit our website at yourdatadriven.com for more useful help and advice on setting up your race car, mastering data analysis, and driving faster. Welcome to episode 35. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Ray Phillips to the show. A successful single-seater driver and top-line driver coach, Ray has a wealth of experience in motorsports. As a competitor and coach, he is one of the early adopters with data. This has led to a lot of success for his drivers in series such as the Ferrari Challenge. So committed is he to the role data plays, he has also recently taken over a former guest, Peter Krause's data and video equipment sales. This is a great conversation with Ray, who shares many hard-won secrets on how to really get a data system working well for you. I'm sure you'll find it fascinating. So, as ever, grab a pen, grab a coffee, sit back, and let's hear what Ray has to say. You may know that at the end of Season 1, I wrote the Motorsports Playbook, a summary distilling the first 20 shows into nuggets of wisdom. I made the notes so that you don't have to. If you've not got it yet, go and grab yourself a copy from the website. So welcome, Ray. Thank you. It's uh, good to be here. It's very kind of you to take the time. I know you're super busy between races and all the different types of work that you do in motorsports. It's going to be fascinating to hear a little bit more about you and your career and your contribution to the world of motorsports and how drivers and, and people listening can really get some understanding of what you're doing. And if we can work towards like maybe one or two takeaways that people can get that they think, oh, you know, I never really thought of doing that. I'll go away next time and try that. That would be absolutely wonderful. So how does that sound as a challenge? Yeah, that sounds great. You know, thanks again for having me. I think this is going to be very interesting. <laughs> Wonderful. I'm, I'm really excited about it. I've, I've been uh, like researching all your stuff and I you know, follow you everywhere on, online. So it's great to hear about all, all the things that I'm really keen to you know, just understand what got you into racing. So tell us a bit about you for the benefit of the people listening and uh, tell us a bit about you, how you got into racing, what you do now, and, and let's see where we go. Well, okay. My story is is probably similar to a lot of people, but different as well. So I don't know why, but I just always had the passion for racing. My parents were not into racing. My dad did not work on cars, but for some reason it was in my blood. Anytime racing was on TV, I was watching it. And, you know, I just always wanted to be a driver. I wanted to quit college and become a race car driver. And uh, my parents did not agree with that at all. So <laughs> I ended up getting a, uh, a degree in finance, believe it or not. So professionally, for most of my career, I've been, you know, a person in finance, director of finance, that type of thing. This is where the the love for numbers perhaps is uh, kindled, I imagine. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I think of myself as being very analytical and, you know, certainly my career path, you know, has led me down that road. But getting back to racing, you know, I, I ended up meeting somebody that was racing a Formula V. 
probably the lower lowest horsepower car you can you can have. But the guy is really great, and he was a Porsche certified mechanic and had been in racing for a lot of years. Raced at the Newburn Ring, you know, just a really good guy and a smart guy. And he was basically my mentor. So I crewed for him from like '94 to '97. And in 97, I bought the car that I was crewing on and got my regional SECA license and went racing. You know, I was now making some money in my career, not a lot, but enough to get started. And, you know, I wasn't buying new tires every weekend or anything like that. I was just basically getting out there and doing it. Let's pause on that one for a second. So what what made the transition? Because you, you sort of, there's a lot of people listening who may be on that cusp of thinking, I uh, do a track day and I kind of like racing. I think I'll probably be all right at it, but it feels like this big step into the unknown to actually go and compete yourself. How did you feel when you did that? Was it because you you had this opportunity with this car, particularly you sort of tripped over it? Or was it like, you know, actually, I'm really ready to give this a go. I, I fancy myself as a, as a driver or whatever. I don't know. Just like, what was it that tipped you over the edge from going like, I'm an observer to actually a participant? Well, you know, again, for some reason, I always thought I could be a driver, you know, so me helping a driver and learning it from the ground up really gave me the confidence of jumping in the car and actually doing it. As you know, there's a lot of different aspects of racing that people outside of racing don't even have an inkling that exists, you know, so, you know, just what do you do when you get to the track? Make sure the car's prepped before you load it, unload it from the trailer, you know, all those different things you know how much fuel do you put in the car you know, <laughs> yeah. you know it's just all those types of things right you know what types of things do you keep track of tire pressures and those types of things you know so so it's, it's a case of certainly for myself it's a case of not knowing what i didn't know and you kind of walk in and you think you know well i've done some i don't know corporate go-karting or something where they literally give you a boiler suit that you put over your own clothes a helmet sit you in a go-kart and push you out and off you go and then you go, well, actually, I'd like to go and race in a car on a circuit or something. And it is all of this logistical kit stuff. And then, and then all of a sudden you find yourself on the track. Go, oh, right, this is what this is all about, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, I went through two different driving schools, a professional school in Canada and then an SCCA school in the car that I owned. Once you have that license, now you've you just got to get out there and do it. So I raced, you know, in our regional series, which... At that time, we had, you know, good fields, you know, probably 15 plus Formula Vs. And I've always said that if you can race a Formula V fast and well, then you can drive anything because it's no horsepower and you can't afford to make mistakes. And it's just a lot of fun, but it's pure driver almost. So, you know, as I made more money, I put more money into my racing and I, I started racing nationally. I got a different car. I, you know, I was spending really quite a bit of money every time I raced a weekend, you know, new tires every weekend, all that stuff, you know, everything I could do to be competitive, you know, spare engine, spare transmission. But the other thing that happened was that data devices were starting to become more popular. And, you know, when I saw that, I was like, especially like predictive lap time, right? Where I can come out of a corner and see if I've improved or not. That was just like, oh my God, this is the best thing ever, you know? And I started really diving deep into how can I get more out of this data system that I have, you know? 
just to explore that a little bit, that certainty of knowing, because you're driving around. I don't know about you, right? So if you go around and, you're, and you start to compete and there's a lap time, you've got a competitive element, haven't you, to it? And then you're up against other people who have maybe doing it better or whatever, and or, or certainly going faster than you. And it's not always obvious why they, they're able to get the lap time. And, and you think, well, how do I approach that? And one of the things that always surprises me with data is the sometimes the lap times it comes in counterintuitive places that I would never have thought of on my own because my mental model of what I needed to do wasn't good enough, you know, because I haven't done it since I could walk. And something like that predictive lap time, it just gives you that, that instant certainty, if you break everything down into corners, you've got like, yeah, that was better than last time. Ah, okay, well, I'll try, I'll try my best to do that again. <laughs> yeah, try to do it again, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, I thought that was fantastic. And then the data system I had in my Formula V was not robust. You know, it was an AIM system, but I was able to add, I think, a throttle position sensor and a steering sensor. I think I had brake travel, but not brake pressure. And then, you know, some health items, you know, that type of thing, but uh, RPMs I had and speed, of course. So, you know, just really kind of the basics. And I'll be honest with you, I wish I knew then what I know now. (laughs) (laughs) I would have been a lot better, I think, you know, I want a number of regional We're always learning, though. We're always learning. What we know now, like, you know, and hopefully in the future we will think the same again. Oh, I wish I knew now what I, you know, what I knew now. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, I, I still got a lot out of it. And at the same time this was going on, I, I got into the role of instructing or coaching. I think it was called instructing back then. But I worked with the Ferrari dealership there. They had track days and I love Ferraris. And, you know, it was an opportunity to drive some really cool cars and ride in some really cool cars. How did you do that? How did that come out? Did you just knock on the door and say, hey, you know, I drive, can I have a go? Well, I, you know, I knew people, I guess. And basically, I said to somebody, this is what I want to do. And they said, all right, well, we can get you in there, but you've got to become an SCCA instructor first. So I instructed for the SCCA schools for a number of years as well. And, you know, I just love the teaching aspect, right? You know, it's it's pretty cool to work with somebody and see them improve. And at the same time, if you're not getting through to them, it's cool to try to figure out how to get through to them, you know, because everybody learns differently. So you have to have different approaches. No, I don't think everyone feels the same about it. I don't know how, whether you've experienced that. I think it's quite a difficult transition from a driver to be a coach. Yeah, it is. And it's one of these, I was, I was talking, who was I talking with the other day? Ross Bentley or someone. And we were talking about coaching and you talked about instructing and coaching. And I've got some experience in the world of Olympic sports where, you know, there's, there's a much more maturity around that subject of assistance <laughs> from instructor through to coaching and things. We were talking about, you know, how do you choose a good coach? Or what do you, what should you look for? Quite often, because it's quite immature as a, I would say in motorsports, it's still quite an immature idea to have assistance. It's possibly looked down upon, maybe or not, I don't know, maybe less so, but certainly traditionally it has been to have a coach or a mental coach or whatever, all these kind of different things. So what should you look for? And the metric that often people use is, well, what can that guy do in a car or girl? What can they do in a car? What's their driving record like? It's a good metric 
because you have to have some experience, obviously, of doing the activity. But it doesn't necessarily translate that they're a great coach. And it's quite rare that you, even in, in any sport, actually, you get the very top performers being transitioning to being the very top coaches. I think it's, yeah. it's a different kind of skill set. Uh, well, I mean, what's your thought on that? I mean, you've obviously said you enjoyed it. So that's the first step. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I mean, I think, you know, being a good coach, obviously you need to understand what you're coaching, but you also have to have a lot of patience with who you're working with. And I think that a lot of the pro drivers, you know, ones that don't make great coaches don't really have that patience and don't take several steps back to think about what they went through at that stage of the person that they're coaching, you know? I don't think you have to be the best driver in the world to be a good coach, though. I think you need to understand the physics. I think you need to understand some of the psychological aspects of racing. But I don't think you have to be the driver that wins every single race. So, you know, there's a lot to coaching that's different than driving. Yeah. There's a guy who, um, uh, an Olympic diving coach, who I worked with a little while ago, and he goes, Samir, my job as a coach is not to be a better diver than you. Obviously, he is. He is a better diver than me, right? But, you know, it's not to be a better diver than you. It's to, it's to extract your genetic potential as a diver. So my job is to get everything I can from you as a diver, you, using, using all of the tools and skills and experience that I have uh, as a coach. And some of it's psychological, some of it's technique, some of it's tactical, some of it's, you know, one coach I worked with, he actually had uh, project management as a metric on your athlete profile because this person said this person is so disorganized, right? It doesn't matter what they're doing. We're going to put project management down as a thing to work on because it's just causing us, it's wasting all our time. You know what I mean? You know, it's about using that everything you can as, a, as an individual, to, as a coach to help that individual become the best version of themselves. Right. Exactly. You know, and I guess, guess it was our head instructor at the SECA school where I was instructing. The one thing that he really emphasized to club racers, especially, is time management. If you don't have good time management skills, then you're not going to be successful racing. Because, you know, if the car ain't ready when it's time to go out on the track, then then you're not ready, you know? So the race is going to start at one o'clock, whether you're on the grid or not. <laughs> exactly, you know. But sometimes that's part of, the instruction, right? The, or the coaching, you know, is making sure that the driver is ready when it's time to go out, you know? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, you know, sometimes you need to put the, some processes in place to make sure that happens. You know, it all depends on who you're working with and what their skill levels are and, and everything else, you know? So let's go back, let's go back to where you, so you were, you were driving and you've, you've just transitioned into doing a bit of coaching now in your career. So where did you go next with that? So you've started to look at the data. You've got a little bit of an insight into that. Oh, that can give me some objective feedback and give me that that time. Yeah. So the data, you know, I started, you know, just really studying it. And I probably <laughs> talked to Roger Cadell more times than he wanted during the time. He's, you know, he's the training manager for AIM, but I was really diving deep into the software to see what I could do with it, you know? So Kind of two things happened. One, you know, I wasn't really going to learn everything I wanted to learn by driving a Formula V. Two, I'd been racing for 14 years and I knew that my days of racing were numbered. 
you know, to extent because I was spending so much on it that, you know, it's like, I'm also a finance guy, right? I want to have some money to retire with at some point, you know, but I bought a formula continental continental and I converted that to a formula F. So it was a Van Diemen and, you know, Honda's got the Honda fit motor now for formula F at least over here in the United States. So instead of running the Ford 1600 motor, I ran the fit 1500 motor which was really great. I mean, it's a a big initial expense, but you didn't have to mess with carburetors or anything like that. And it had an ECU. So now I got a lot more data from the ECU and I put a much more robust data system in the car, created my own shock sensors, you know, which weren't great, but they kind of got the job done as much as I needed them to get done, you know. Worked with John Block. You just had him on, on the show. And uh, learned tons from him, you know, because basically I hired him to help me and just kind of really went as far as I could with the data, you know, with anything that I learned there. And, you know, I had a blast and that car is still running and I still help the guy that owns that car, you know, every once in a while anyway. So I raced it for three years, did some F1600 Pro races, you know, did SCCA Nationals, that type of thing. So kind of went as far as I could with it, but that car requires a lot more time. And my wife was my crew at the time and she wasn't enjoying it as much as I was. And if she's not enjoying it, then I'm not enjoying it. So it was kind of time to say, okay, let's step away from the racing aspect and see if I can take the data analysis aspect further. Because what I found was, you know, I could talk to other drivers that had data systems and find out they're not really using them. They're just kind of using them as a as a stopwatch, you know, getting lap times on their dash. Started showing them the different things that I was doing and, you know, kind of blew their minds, you know. So I found that I could just tell them a few things and they would take, you know, a second or more off the clock, you know. So I was like, well, this is pretty good, you know. If I can continue doing this, then maybe I can make something out of that, you know. So... At the time, I was living in Northern Virginia, and Summit Point Raceway was my home track. But my wife, she's a principal of elementary school now, and she got a job in Durham, North Carolina. So that's when I started my company. That was in 2015. So that's when I started Precision Driving Analytics and really tried to make a go of you know what I had to offer, basically. Yeah, it's fascinating. I've got, I've got, I've written two things down here. I've got what were you showing the other drivers? And how did you manage the dynamic with your wife at <laughs> the track? Now, because like I'm laughing, right? Because this is this is the kind of thing right? we spend most of the time on this show talking about like data and driving and how to you know the the, the, the finer points of brake application or something like that. But 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 really there's this bigger elephant in the room in the sense of that, you know, people it's a whole family kind of thing, whether 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 they're at the track or whether they're you know, everyone's kind of invested in the fact that you go racing because it's not like just going for a run. It's a weekend away. You've got all the faff you talked about. It's not inexpensive. And if people do come to watch, unless they really, I don't know, get racing, it can be pretty dull. You know, you're just watching cars drive around in a circle. And if you don't get why that's interesting, then then you're like, it can be pretty. So how did you, I mean, like, approach any of that with your wife what, what tips have you got for the people listening to, uh, <laughs> to <make that> more? 
Well, one, I, w- I was racing when we started dating. So, you know, she would come to the track and kind of see what it was all about. And if this was still with the Formula V, of course. And, you know, with the Formula V, it really wasn't all that complicated. But what she could do was like take tire pressures after I came off, take tire temperatures. She would be on the radio to me telling me different things that I need to know. So this is a thing that you guys have in the States, isn't it? So I, I actually happen to coach a Formula V guy right now. We did the, the runoff and he's saying, oh yeah, I've got my spotter on the, in the, you know, cause it was at Indy, right? We've got, I've got my spotter in the grandstand or whatever. And I'm like, spotter, what, what is that? Cause we, we don't have any, we don't have any like pit to car radio at, at that kind of level in racing in the UK. And I was just thinking, the worst person I would want to I mean, like, oh, she, my, my wife never listens to these shows. The worst person I'd want on the radio is my wife, because she'd literally be talking me around every corner. She'd be, like, screaming at me, giving me advice. Come on, try harder. <laughs> I don't know. I'll take my hat off to you for doing that one. <laughs> no, my wife is very good. She was she was excellent, to be honest. She kept track of all the setup changes and stuff like that, you know, so... She understands racing. You know, we still watch Formula One together and, you know, sometimes IndyCar and that stuff. So she, I mean, she understands it. She's a big Alonzo fan. So, yeah, she was great. But, you know, the the Formula F, you know, with the four-wheel shocks and everything, and it was just more complicated. And setups were much more important, right? You know, there's a lot more to change on the car. So just keeping track of all those changes, you know, was was more of a job. And plus, we were trying to do it at a higher level. And I think sometimes, you know, that wasn't as as much fun either. You know, when we're trying to do pro races against teams that have two or three crew guys per car, and they're able to turn the car around very quickly, whereas I'm jumping out of the car, trying to look at data, trying to make sure the car's got fuel, trying to decide if I want to make a setup change. Do I need to do something different as a driver? You know, I mean, there's... It's it's stressful. It's stressful. And uh, yeah, so if if there's two of you together, it's stressful. And it it crosses the boundary at some point. So a lot of the stuff, uh, you know, I'm I'm here trying to help people like you, you know, with with data and understanding stuff. But but at some point, if any of this stuff gets, gets flips from fun to unfun, you know, that's that's a sign like to like, just stop doing the data if it's unfun. You know what I mean? You've just... It's not, well, you know, it's not your job, so it should be fun. And and I can imagine that being quite stressful because you'd be like, well, you know, we need to get all this stuff done and they've got an advantage over us. And yeah, I can see that. You know, and also, you know, you get hit by somebody, it's not your fault, but, you know, you've got to pay for it, you know, and, you know, so that's that's all part of racing, right? You know, it's it's the highest highs and lowest lows. You know, when you do great, it's it feels fantastic. You know, it's, there's nothing better. Did she get out of the car? Is that something? Have you taken her out in the car and, and and given that experience? Because again, when you're watching from the outside, particularly with a Formula V, I mean, they look so slow. I mean, they do. And and yet you're in the car. It feels anything but, you know. So have you have you been able to share that experience of what it's like to be on a track together? And or can she, I mean, she, maybe she, she drives very well anyway. You know, she doesn't drive like me. I'll put it this way. She's not a bad driver, but, you know, she doesn't drive like I do. But um, I've offered, you know, to to let her drive the race car, you know, and um, and see what she thinks. But she declined that. But she has been around a few tracks. I think I've I got a Honda S2000 and, you know, I used to, you know, to coach with that. But I think we went around Watkins Glen with it. She got a ride in a Ferrari F40. 
I took her around in a Ferrari 360 Spider. So, I mean, she she's had her share of experiences on the track as well. And she knows I know what I'm doing. Let's put it that way, you know? So she's very trusting in that regard. You know, I, I mean, I'm not going to do anything that puts one, the car I'm driving in danger <laughs> to, to <laughs> us in danger. So, yeah. So, because a lot of the cars I drive obviously aren't my own. So I, I just think that the other half, the better half, be it, you know, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, whatever, you know, whatever you have, the, the person who's not competing and in the car, I think they, it's under, it's underappreciated that the their their role in everything, and I think it's another area that we could do better at. So I'm just interested. So it's fantastic, right? So get her in a Ferrari, or get him get them on the track together, get them involved in part of the activities as well. I think that's a great that's a great thing if they're up for it. Oh yeah, you know it's. I mean, it's why we're still together. To be honest, I don't think I could have been with anybody that wasn't accepting of the racing and and really wanted to be a part of it, you know, because I've seen seen relationships that weren't that way and most of them don't work out. <laughs> yeah, know, so. yeah. I mean, there's a social side too as well. I mean, I think racing is is quite social as well. And um, certainly, certainly at, yeah, you know, the grassroots level, you know, everyone gets together and, and in the evenings and things like that. So hopefully that that's that's another good thing. So I'm going to I'm going to ask you about data now. I'm going to ask. So what? So what were these questions that you were asking? That your what were these little insights that you were showing your your other drivers that kind of blew them away? Oh man, I don't know if I can remember. You know, it could be just where are they breaking? You know, compared to me, you know, or you know, how are they getting on the throttle? You know, what line are they taking? You know, it's just you know, how are they using the friction circle? I mean, it's just. Why am I able to pull 1.2 G's and they're only pulling one, you know? So, uh, you know, those types of things, you know, it's most of it's pretty low hanging fruit, right? Well, it's, uh, but yeah, you've got to be, you've got to be careful. You can't be like the pro driver yourself with this yeah. Like, cause you know it now, right? So, so, so if someone's starting from zero, it's like, he said braking, he said throttle, he said line, I get all that, but he said the word friction circle. I may not have heard that before. That seems a bit weird. Uh, he talked about G. I kind of get that because I watched it on the telly, but like Formula One, they're doing 5G and I'm doing one. Is that Does that mean I'm good or not good? You know what I mean? It's kind of like there's, there's a whole reference plane of base understanding that, that someone starting from zero wouldn't necessarily have. You're, you're right. Though. Once you once you have that, it's quite easy to, to get and quite quick to get. But there's a kind of a, there's a learning curve of, of going from zero to something. <laughs> oh yeah. And you know, and that and that gets back down to you have to understand the skill level of the person that you're working with, right? You know, so if it's somebody that I just instructed through driver school, then then I'm probably not going to be talking about the friction circle with him, you know. But you know, if it's somebody that I'm racing against and we're both pretty comparable, then I might say, okay, you know, I'm pulling, you know, this many G's in this corner. And you're only pulling this many. So, you know, we've got the same car here. So, you know, I'm doing something different, obviously, to get either that extra bit of G's and maybe it's carrying more speed into the corner, you know? So it's, you know, obviously the speed trace is extremely important in those types of discussions, especially back then, because I didn't have all the other tools that I have now, you know? But yeah, I mean, just things like that. Yeah, it's it's just it's just interesting to sort of like to unpick that a little bit. It's like so where would you start? Like, have you got like three or four go-to metrics for driver analysis that you think like, okay, you know, have you got, I mean, have you got a process that gets you to that point as well? 
like, so the cars come in, what happens? What happens then? You've got like 45 minutes or an hour before you go out again. But the car comes in. What process do you like to follow? One, I've probably done a lot of homework before the car even got to the track. Because <laughs> <So, Yeah. laughs> <laughs> I almost always ask for data from the car and driver before I get there. And I probably go further than most because I'm very big on creating user profiles and math channels for people, you know, based on what I can get out of the, the data that they've sent to me, you know, so... So for people listening, what what is that? What's a math channel and what's a user profile? You know, a math channel is just a formula, okay? Like an Excel formula or something like that. Yeah, you know, it's the nomenclature is different in software systems, but it's no different than a formula that you write in Excel, you know? And uh, a user profile, that's an AIM term. Um, in MoTeC, I think they're called uh, workspaces or something like that. It's just something that you can click on where all your graphs and all are already created and you don't have to spend time recreating the wheel, basically, you know, so like I'll have a lap compare profile where I've got RPM, speed, steering, throttle, brake, gear, and I'll use that to compare two laps. And when I bring up the second lap, it gives me a time delta. So now I can look at all the different controls you know, that the driver has and look at the time delta and figure out, okay, what is that driver doing differently here that gained him time? I'll create a bunch of these things, you know. Um, I'll be honest with you, a lot of this I got from John Block and I listened to his podcast, what, a couple of weeks ago, something like that. And, you know, one of the things he mentioned was having the driver do a data sheet, basically ranking the understeer and stuff right after he got out of the car I'm in total agreement with that. He had me doing that. He did have you doing that. Well, so, so this is quite interesting because because people come on the show and you talk and or, or you just talk to people and they give you the theory of like that's what you should do. And then when you actually get to the track, the actual activity bears no resemblance to what they said they were going to do. Just because of the just because of the nature of what's happened, like you know, there's the day is hectic. So it's like, oh, do I really have to do that thing? So he's coached you and he has made you do those things. So that's interesting. And it works, you know, because it, it gets you thinking about it immediately without a bunch of distractions. You know, you're not talking to your crew. You're not, you know, talking to, you know, the other buddy of yours that came over and say, hey, did you see what happened in the corner, blah, blah, blah. You know, so it keeps you focused on what the driver is experiencing in the car. I think this gets missed a lot, to be honest. I'm going to kind of get into a handling discussion here because... I think there's a lot to the comment that, hey, you know, it's down to the driver to make this car faster. And I think it's easy to forget that the car can help the driver make the car go faster. I think as humans, we quickly blame ourselves for not doing as well as we think we should be doing. But, you know, after working with pro drivers, you know, just maybe not coaching them or anything, but just being around them, you know, when they drive a car, they can get out of the car and tell you exactly, or be, before they're out of the car, exactly what the car is doing at every corner, entry, middle, exit. So they already know what they're experiencing. So them filling out that type of sheet is no big deal, right? You know, because they've already been thinking about it. But getting somebody who's never gone through that process and never really thought about what the car is doing in those three phases of the corner is much more challenging. 
But if you can get somebody thinking about that, now you can draw out of them what's preventing you from going to throttle sooner here. What's causing you to lift off the throttle here? And if you know, basically you get into this whole handling discussion at that point. And I I think that's extremely important because I frequently do stuff for drivers. Maybe it's just creating user profiles and math channels for them. And they say, uh, you know, it's just me, but I'll calculate the amount of understeer the car has. And I'll see that it's got way too much understeer, you know, in different phases of the corner. And I'm like, well, did you make a setup change to try to change this? Now it's me. Yeah. But if we make a setup change here, we could probably help you. I, I think it really comes down to that. That is for me, encapsulates the whole reason why this kind of data analysis is of any use for a driver's point of view anyway, because it's, it's, it's always like, it's like a means to an end is what I think. It's like, I only got into it because I wanted to solve these kind of problems of the sense of like, I don't really understand what I could do differently. I'm uncertain about the best way to approach this. So I can either go again <laughs> and try harder or maybe there's something in here that can give me some guidance, at least on actually, no, if we make this change to the car, that's going to help. And we'll see that straight away. And quite often, I think an amateur level. So I've certainly felt that, you know, I'm not a good enough driver to make a setup change. And I don't know if that's representative of anyone listening. <laughs> maybe I'm just being a bit too vulnerable here. Because we all get in the car thinking we're good, right? But, but at the same time, you think, well, I'm not a pro. So if we're making these changes to the, and I don't feel it, does that make me a bad driver or, or, or whatever? You know what I mean? So people may be a little bit cautious to make setup changes. Plus, it's complicated as well. It's like, well, what, what does that really mean? Well, I, you know, I see that all the time, to be honest. And I think a lot of people, especially at the club level, don't realize the importance of testing. And I don't mean just driving the car. I mean, you know, anytime I tested and, you know, I got this from my mentor, you know, I made a setup change, you know, every time I went on track, if nothing else, just to feel it, you know, when I got the Formula F, it was totally new to me, you know, very different from a Formula V, but, you know, it had a a front sway bar, had a rear sway bar, had adjustable shocks, had, you know, right height changes, you know, I mean, on and on and on, right? So I went through, and, and this is one thing my wife did for me, you know, I would run the car without the cowling and say, okay, change the front bump by five sweeps or rear rebound or whatever it is. Would you make quite a big change or? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I want to make a big change because I want to feel what that did. And I constantly want to be thinking about where is it affecting the car? Is it entry, middle or exit? You know, and I think that's extremely important, you know, because if I'm putting my race engineer hat on and I want to help this car go faster, you know, I think the driver's doing a, a really good job, but he's dealing with, like, say, too much understeer or something like that. You know, if frequently I can't get a good enough answer out of the driver to tell me where is it happening in the corner, which is why I like to calculate it. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, let's say it's happening, you know, at corner exit. Well, you know, I'll say it's not always the right decision, but the weight is now on the back of the car. So if I make an adjustment in the rear, it's going to mean more because that's where the weight is. And frequently that's, that's all I need to do. Right. But if it's that corner entry where the weights on the front of the car, 
then I'm probably not going to adjust the rear right away. I'll probably make a, an adjustment in the front. So I think all of that comes into play, right? But the driver has to understand what he's experiencing. And if he's not able to tell you what he's experiencing, then you've got to help him try to figure that out. You're a team. You're a team together. And you're on the same side of the table. And I think this is something that often gets missed as well, because you, we still have this legacy of instructor versus coach. And so if you start to get, dig into this definition of what's the difference, like the instructor is instructing you on what to do, and the coach is very much more on your side of the table and you're more peers or mentor kind of relationship. And it's like, well, how, how can we work together to help you go quicker? And that involves making the car more to your liking and if you don't know what the car, what car you like or you don't like, let's try different settings so we get an opinion. Exactly. You know, I mean, you're you're paying to use that track and it's expensive. So you might as well try to get as much out of it as you possibly can. You know, I'm not saying make some change that's gonna make the car so loose it's undrivable. You know, I mean, yeah, there's gotta be some semblance of, of uh, you know, reality <laughs> there, but uh but still, if you don't ever make the change, you'll never know what how it can help you. Or maybe you don't like it, but you'll never know unless you try it. In fairness, though, in fairness, people think it's a waste of time equally. Like, so you said that track drive is expensive and track time is expensive. So we want to get the most out of it. So we don't want to do a change that's going to make the car worse, in inverted commas, because we're going to, that's wasting our time. We know it's going to be worse. So what's the point? Well, it's to get the feel. and and. I'm thinking more long-term than just the weekend. So that change at a different track may be helpful, may be hurtful at this track, but it may be helpful at another track. But you will never know if that's the direction you should go unless you try it. So especially if you have a car with downforce or something, right? You know, when it comes to my coaching style, I'm probably more technical than I am psychological. You know, I think there's coaches out there that are definitely a lot more psychological than I am. And the focus is always on what the car, I mean, sorry, what the driver is doing and how they can manage all the different things that are coming at them. I kind of like working with drivers that have been doing it for a long time. And it's more about getting them and the car to be as one. Again, it's a different skill, isn't it? That's more of a coaching thing, I would say, than a instructing thing. I've got a question for you about this understeer data channel. So you've, you mentioned it a couple of times, but understeer is not a channel that comes out of the box. No, that's a math channel. So how do you generate that? And well, how can people generate that? Well, I actually just gave everybody the formula in an article I wrote for Ross Bentley in his uh, Speed Secrets Weekly thing. So, Oh, brilliant. <laughs> they, okay. They can, they can go find that and find the, uh, <laughs> the math channel. I'll try, I'll try and find it. I'll try and find it for everyone, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't know it off the top of my head because it's, it's a little complicated, but at the same time, all it, all it really needs is speed, lateral Gs, and wheelbase. Okay, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. So not because often people talk about steering wheel angle and things like that, and that's a sensor that doesn't naturally, unless you put it on, you haven't got steering wheel angle with an aim solo, for example. So, so sort of everyone goes, oh. <laughs> well, I mean, it's it's a couple of different things, right? So if you have those three things I mentioned, speed, GPS, wheelbase, then you can calculate neutral steer, which is basically what I, I think of it as a theoretical amount of steering to get a car around the corner with no slip angle. 
Okay, so not sliding. Yeah, so this this is to get the car as if the car just went round on rails, had no understeer oversteer. It's just completely balanced. That's the neutral steer. That will be a number of X degrees. Okay. Right, exactly. So to get to understeer, you have to know the amount of steering at the front tires. Okay. So if you know the steering ratio and you've got the amount of steering at the steering wheel, then it's a simple division to get to the amount of steering at the front tires. Or you could put the car in turn plates, or you could draw a line on the pavement, you know, and measure, you know. So, I mean, there's several different ways to get there. But once you know what that amount of degrees is, then the difference between that number and your neutral steer tells you whether or not you have understeer or oversteer. Okay. So I found out through (laughs) different means that understeer can be a very touchy subject with racers or drivers because everybody's got kind of a subjective view as to whether or not it's good or it's bad or whatever, (laughs) you know? None of the heroes like understeer, do they? Kimi Raikkonen is famous for not liking understeer. Alonso, look at him. He's all tail happy. Yeah, all these, all these, the best drivers, uh, Lewis Hamilton, Max, they all like a lively rear end. So we want that too. And, and that's fine. <laughs> but, but I guarantee you, if we did this calculation on any of those cars, the car would have some understeer. Absolutely. It's just going to be at a lower level. Danny Nolan was on the show and he talked about static margin. Is that something you're familiar with? Uh, so there's this kind of, I don't know if it's exactly right, but it's kind of your center. So there's a, the car is pivoting around a point, but that point isn't the same point as the center of gravity, right? So the difference along the wheelbase of where those two points are is this static margin concept and the the closer they are together, the more agile the car, and the, the further they are apart, the more the less agile the car, so the more understeer it has. It's kind of come from aircraft, kind of stability, this kind of thing. And so that that kind of it says exactly what you're saying is like whilst these hero drivers like oversteer, in actual fact, they can just live with a lower static margin, but it's still stable as a car, otherwise it would flip. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, it's the same type of deal. You know, so what I found is that you know pro drivers generally have a lower average understeer number than than an amateur driver, you know, because obviously the car is more comfortable if it's got a little bit more understeer, right? But a pro driver will say have some understeer going in, but they're perfectly happy with the back end rotating a little bit more mid-corner to corner exit, you know, because they get the rotation and they're on the gas and, and out of there. So yeah, I mean it's it's a very interesting concept and I truthfully have not seen it fail, you know, because <laughs> it's, it's a calculation, right? You know, I mean, it's not like I'm guessing at this. So the lovely thing about that is you can you can match what the driver is saying and feeling to the numbers, and then almost iterate off that as well. And so you can so the driver you ask the driver something and they may be unsure, or <laughs> I can't really remember, or I think it's doing this, and you say, well, it looks to me in the data as if you've got you know quite a lot of understeer on the way in, and they're like, well, yeah, I'm kind of hesitant i'm waiting because i can't get the car to the apex you're like okay well that's what we're talking about so you're almost coaching them on how to give you feedback in a way that enables them to a understand what they can do in the driving but also how they can maybe look at modifying the car even if you only got tire pressures to modify you can still tweak that kind of stuff absolutely yeah so i've even gone further with this so 
you're smiling. No one can see this, but you're smiling, right? So I have no <laughs> idea what's coming next. Like, <laughs> well, you know, there's there's all sorts of discussion about break release, right? That is extremely important. That's probably the hardest thing for a new driver to get to perfect, right? Is that that trail braking all the way to the apex and a nice slow brake release. And that does help keep the weight on the front of the car and reduce understeer corner entry. So that's all great. But, and John Block touched upon this as well on, on your podcast, but lifting off the throttle, I think, is almost as important as brake release. Because if you if you just focus on the throttle trace, one, there's the aspect of how soon can you get the throttle, but there's the other aspect of when you start to apply throttle, are you lifting to counteract understeer or maybe it's oversteer? So if you create a math channel that says, okay, if my understeer level is, is greater than three, and that's just simply an arbitrary number, and the throttle velocity is negative, which means lifting, then give me a one, okay? So what that does in the data is it, is it gives you a spike, right? So anytime there's a lift, when the understeer is greater than a certain level, a spike shows up, and that immediately tells me this driver is dealing with understeer and it's to a point where it's affecting him, uh, you know, as far as getting to full throttle. And to me, that's, that's a time to make a setup change. So throttle velocity is another channel that people were like, hang on, so did you just say velocity and throttle and not, you didn't mean the car, did you? you mean, so, that, so that is the rate at which you're pushing down on the throttle. Are you pushing it quickly down or slowly down? And uh, I guess you're integrating that and then you can get the, the, the slope of the throttle trace such that you can then say, well, are you coming onto the throttle or off the throttle and create this channel? I love that. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, it's not even in integration, to be honest. It's just simply looking at the derivative. Oh, sorry, the de- derivative. I always get those mixed up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's basically, so yeah, you can see how quickly he's applying throttle, but also how quickly he's lifting off the throttle, you know? And that's the important part, you know? Because if you look at a pro driver's data, when they start to apply throttle, they may have a pause, but they don't really lift, they may have a pause to wait for the front tires to have grip, but they're getting to full throttle as soon as they possibly can. And they're staying there. I agree. So John made a point about don't confuse activity for speed, which I thought was a really nice phrase. And it's kind of takes confidence to do that with a throttle because you feel as if like, I should be doing, I was anxious, I should be getting on the throttle, you should be you know, go, 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 go. And then if, and you and you're you're hustling, you're you know, you're freestyling this kind of all of your driving uh, skills are coming in, but it and so it takes confidence to kind of almost dial that down and go, no, I'm just going to wait, I'm just going to wait. Well, boom, you know, then I'm going to go again. It's the psychological element as well as the what the data show you. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, basically, a driver is anxious, right? He's anxious to get up to speed. So, and I've experienced this as a driver. You know, you get into the corner, you start applying throttle. Oh, wait, that's too much. I lift. Try again. Oh, wait, that's still too much. I got to lift. And then go to full throttle. Well, it's that hobby horsing that we need to get rid of, you know? Yeah, because ironically, that on and off is screwing up the tire contact patch. It doesn't know whether it's coming or going. So it's actually slowing you down, your ability to do that. 
as well. Yeah, it's fascinating. So I, I'm, I'm looking at the time. I can't believe we've been we've been talking so long. I'm loving it. It's absolutely wonderful. Give us one or two things that you think, well, you know, I see this all the time with drivers. We've had loads of them already, I know. But so maybe there's one or two things that people can think about and think, oh, you know, go to the chat next time. Ray said do this. And uh, I've never thought of doing that before. But I'm putting you on the spot. But, you know, what? maybe there's one or two things other than taking the notes and doing all these things. But is there anything you've seen that you think, you know what, people could really benefit from, from doing X? Well, I think number one is really thinking about what the car is doing, you know, really trying to develop that skill of what is the car doing entry, middle exit. So that's number one in my book. Number two, really look for what we just talked about, you know, the hobby horsing with the throttle pedal, you know, because I see that all the time, all the time. And if we can fix that, it's amazing how much time we can take off the clock. How, how much time do you think? I mean, because you're off down the straight, so maybe, what, half a second? If they're doing it every corner, probably easy half a second. That's easy, right? It just requires a little bit of patience. And if the car isn't allowing you to do it, then make a setup change. Don't blame yourself when the car is the one that's the problem. Every car has some sort of setup change you can make, but even if it's just tire pressures, like you, like you said, you know? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Well, look, it's, it's been a real honor to have you on the show. I could talk to you all day. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much for your time and been a real eye-opener. And, and, you know, thank you again for taking the time. No, I, I really appreciate you having me on, uh, Samir. You know, this has been a lot of fun. Where can people get you online? So my, my company is Precision Driving Analytics, and my website is precisiondrivinganalytics.com. It's a lot, but so, yeah, that's the best way to get a hold of me. Email is rphillips at drivinganalytics.com. Okay, well, I'll put, I'll put the links down below. But look, no, thanks again, and it's been great. All right. Thank you, Samir. What an amazing guy Ray is. I really hope you got a lot from listening. I certainly have. His confidence with the math channels and trying to use them to help speed your analysis is for sure an area to look at if that's new for you. As a driver, being able to understand and remember what the car's doing on entry, mid-corner and exit is a key skill that is often overlooked. Being smooth and patient with the throttle will be faster in the end. So there's no need to blame yourself if the car is holding you back. Remember what's happening so you can try and fix it when you're back in the pits. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and visit us at yourdatadriven.com. Listener.